Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This is another podcast of World Wide Wave, the international LGBT news and current affairs show, every week on Australia's first LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, seems to have more of a focus on human rights or more open to human rights issues. What's happening there and, and what does it mean for LGBT rights? Yes, there has been a big change in Southeast Asia generally and and the intergovernmental organisation, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. A a range of individual nation states within the organisation historically were very against the ideas of human rights and democracy. Going back to the 1990s, there was this thing called the Asian Values Debate where democracy and human rights were seen as uh, sort of neo-imperial Western impositions uh, homosexuality was seen as, you know, sort of sign of Western decadence and so on and so forth. Um, there's still a bit of that that is going on, but the the big change around uh, human rights in particular is that the at the regional level, ASEAN, the association, has adopted its own human rights declaration. They've set up a, a series of human rights uh, organisations and the overarching one is called the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. So there's been this this big turnaround where human rights are something that is now talked about in connection with democracy. Um, The countries of the region talk about wanting to have a more people-oriented and people-centred politics. So that all sounds really good for human rights and democracy, right? Yes. (laughs) It's a, a really significant change. The thing about it, though, for those of us who are interested in LGBT rights or the queer community or depending on what kind of terminology you want to use, uh, sexuality and gender diversity rights, the problem is that the human rights declaration that was promulgated by the region uh, explicitly goes out of its way not to include sexuality or gender diversity as Uh, grounds on which you can be protected from discrimination. So a lot of the the standard protections uh, for human rights that you would see in just about any other Bill of Rights, you know, sort of nationally or internationally are are included, Um, but sexuality and gender diversity rights are are not, although they do have uh, clauses in there that are around gender when it's viewed through a heteronormative lens. So when you're talking about you know, traditional values, understandings of men and women, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a boost there around protections for women, uh, understood in that sense. But if you're talking about sexual orientation or gender diversity, you know, the trans community and so forth, uh, no. Do you think that exclusion, that explicit exclusion, it, you know, it's a political thing to appease some of the more hardline countries while the progressives might have wanted to go further? Well, that's an interesting question. So let, let's take one of the countries that is uh, progressive as a, uh, you know, in inverted commas, as a way of answering this. So the, 
the whole push to have a regional human rights system. Uh, Indonesia was very important in this. And under these kind of criteria, Indonesia can be described as, as one of the, you know, sort of the small L liberal, or although that word doesn't really work, but in our politics, we sort of understand what we mean there, but uh, pushing progressive, trying to encourage the region to adopt, you know, these international norms that are being talked about and adopted everywhere else. So from one point of view, you could say that uh, Indonesia fulfills these terms, but then in Indonesia itself, the domestic politics around LGBTIQ rights is going in exactly the opposite direction. So the answer is very, very complicated, really. I mean, I think there's a range of discussions that can be had about why it is that the region even adopted a human rights regime in the first place. Um, you know, was this because there was a, a kind of a Damascene moment where Southeast Asia suddenly, or the, the intergovernmental organisations anyway, the political elites, uh, suddenly decided that human rights were a good thing, that they believed in them now, or is it some kind of fig leaf? The countries in the region catch so much flack from other countries about human rights that the one way to neutralise that and talk about other things is just to capitulate and say, okay, well, 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 we'll go along with this human rights stuff like you want us to, and then we can have a conversation about other things. So there's that kind of discussion. But then when you look at other countries around the world, including countries like Australia and the United States, who would describe themselves as being, you know, on the forefront of pushing for human rights internationally, you know, these liberal Western countries also have very significant problematic human rights records. So in Australia, most people would, uh, at, at the top of sort of the public awareness would be our track record around uh, refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, and uh, the First Nations peoples, you know, so from some points of view, the countries of the region are being normalised, like any other country that says that it agrees with human rights, but has its own human rights problems. So from some points of view, the, the Southeast Asian countries are just sort of, as I said, being, being normalised uh, like that. Although it is certainly the case that across Southeast Asia, there are a range of different uh, positions with respect to human rights in general, but also with respect to sexuality and gender diversity rights. There also seems to be more visibility of LGBT people and LGBT groups in many of the Southeast Asian nations. And sort of many of them came from sort of that HOV response where they were sort of seen as a health group rather than a gay group, and that was okay. But now they're more bold and and demanding or asking for rights and protections. Is that just a natural progression or is there something else going on? Well, it is partly a natural progression, but I think there is also something else going on. Um, and I think it is significantly related to the opportunity that has been presented to LGBTIQ groups across the region by this institutional turn to human rights. Because as, as you point out previously, uh, it seemed to be that the, the way you got in, so to speak, was through the health route, right? Um, which was absolutely needed anyway on its own terms, uh, the HIV response and, and various other dimensions of health that are related to sexuality and gender identity and expression. 
So I don't for a minute want to downplay the significance of that and, and its historical role and its contemporary role. It's absolutely vital. But the thing that you get is that, that when, you know, so, so the, the turn to human rights at the regional level happens sort of uh, 2009 is when the, the, what they call the ICHA, the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, was inaugurated. And 2012 is when the ASEAN Human Rights Declaration is promulgated. So my argument is that what that allows people to do, which they in some cases quite literally were not allowed to do previously, is that it allows them to use the language of human rights about themselves. And so they can make claims about human rights. And then because at the international level, like the the best practice human rights institutions do protect people on uh, grounds of discrimination around sexuality and gender identity expression. So you have this human rights system which allows you to talk about human rights, but you're also able to compare it with other ones and say, look, we have this, we have this gap, we have this problem, you know, we want to fill that gap. So part of what happens is that people who are engaged in LGBTIQ work across the region are able to start using the language of human rights and they're able to start saying, you know, doing this compare and contrast business and say, look, maybe our human rights regime should also look after LGBTIQ people. And you claim that we have human rights. You claim that human rights apply to everyone. You claim that you want to have a more people-centred and a more people-oriented kind of politics. Well, we're LGBTIQ people. We're people, you know, we have human rights as well. You know, it's a very similar kind of strategy and a similar kind of argument that has been used in other jurisdictions um, that have strong rights traditions in politics, including here in Australia, uh, you know, LGBT rights around same-sex marriage and, and uh, adoption and, and, you know, various other responses. So my argument is that, and in some cases this is very explicit, so I think of one organisation which has the name of the ASEAN SOGI Corpus. So SOGI, S-O-G-I-E, for people who are not familiar with it, is an acronym like LGBTIQ, which stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity Expression. So this organisation came into being around about the same time that the human rights regime was instituted in the region for the express purpose of saying, look, we're queer people. We live in Southeast Asia. You political elites are talking about human rights. Well, we're here to claim them. <laughs> okay, and we're, we're going to claim them for queer people. So the organization is based in the Philippines, but it operates across the region. And it's kind of a, an umbrella organization that has helped a whole range of other organizations in the region who want to use this term to the language of human rights and the institutions of human rights in the region as a lever that they can pull on to say, well, as I just said, you guys are talking about human rights. We want them. We think they apply to us as queer people as well as just to your your, uh, quote-unquote normal citizen (laughs) in any other uh, country in the region. Many of the countries in the past politicians have used that line that homosexuality is a Western import. Um, It seems that some countries that line is losing its power, whilst in other countries it's strengthening. Then you've got these groups like the ASEAN Sogi Caucus who are locals, who are 
empowering local groups to speak up. So it's sort of kind of taking that argument out of the picture. What's the difference between countries which are able to advance that argument and those that are, you know, still using that homosexuality as a Western import argument? Well, I think even for a lot of people who are on the, as it were, the anti-queer side of politics, <laughs> there is some recognition that this is this is a bit of a, a farce, really, right? Um, I mean, basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a form of cultural politics, cultural war politics. Uh, in some places, it's very explicitly modelled on what goes on in the West. And in some of the countries, actually, that have significant Christian religious minorities, the Western playbook around sort of anti-LGBT politics is one that they're very self-consciously utilising. You know, there are examples of this, for example, in, in Singapore and in, in the Philippines. But if we think about the region more broadly, I guess there are two important things to comment on here. One is that the region broadly has a very long and storied set of traditions and, and you know, social traditions, social cultures that include forms of sexuality and gender diversity. Uh, a lot of it is tied into sort of uh, tr traditional social and religious forms across the region that historically date back before you know, Western interventions in, in the region. So for anyone who has this kind of historical knowledge of what happens in the region, like with anywhere else on the planet, <laughs> sexuality and, and gender identity is something that is there, you know. So there, there are these traditions, and in some countries and in some civil society organisations across the region, these traditions are quite explicitly drawn on and incorporated into their activism. You know, so there's a whole conversation that goes on around that. But more broadly, I suppose, and, and this perhaps also is one of the things that we've been able to see more with the turn to democracy and the, the and more freedom around the language of human rights in, in the region, is that queer people across the region, you know, who are there, who have always been there, um, have in some places been able to come together and uh, find solidarity amongst themselves and emancipatory practices. This has all happened uh, in one form or another over very long periods of time. But one of the other components of the story, along with the introduction of this you know, sort of human rights regime and the turn to democracy in some places and the language of sort of being people-centred and people-oriented, is the whole global transition that we're experiencing about social media and uh, digital technologies and information technology. And so what this has enabled, you know, really shouldn't be downplayed, is that it has enabled people to be able to connect to one another without having to be physically present, to be able to communicate with one another, to be able to share information. That information might be everything from, you know, sort of... Uh, health practices through to, you know, political strategizing. <laughs> um, it might be about, you know, when someone you know has just been thrown out of their house because their family are religiously conservative and they've just been outed as queer in some way, you know, using those technologies as ways of fundraising to be able to provide money, you know, to be able to provide safety for individual peoples or has happened in a number of places across the region you know, networks of um, safe houses. So this is also another piece of the puzzle, really, both from the point of view of enabling um, 
maybe we could call it, you know, protected organization or safe organization, information, people being able to access information and, and people being able to access information about themselves. You know, the stories, I was just reading one online this morning, uh, stories about people who are brought up or find themselves living in relatively isolated circumstances, but they they know that they're same-sex attracted or trans or, you know, something like this. And because they have online access, they're able to find out information about what this might mean in their own personal experience. But they're also able to discover that there, there are other people in their own town, in their, in their own country who are like this, so, so that they don't have to believe the propaganda that it is some kind of Western decadent import or, you know, way of corrupting society. And they can actually come to understand that, no, this is just a normal part of being human and that it happens in our society as well. One of the tools that is available to the civil society organisations is the United Nations Universal Periodic Reviews. It really gives a chance for lead agencies in countries to put a particular issue on the agenda at the United Nations level and for other countries to sort of support them in that. What is it about that process that brings change? Is it that the country is, as you sort of alluded to before, being shamed on the international stage or is it just the sheer persistence of groups saying we're not going away? Well, uh, yes, it's, it's a combination of those things, but there is also the prior question as to whether, in fact, Universal Periodic Review does bring change. So there's, so there's, right. so there's an interesting point here, you know, which is the question about what does cause change for queer communities and queer, queer representation and rights and so on. Now, I'm not entirely convinced myself that you could say that this process of Universal Periodic Review you know, it's, a, it's an international bureaucratic process that is really about information gathering and sharing at the elite political level. One of the problems with accessing this, this process that is a problem for the kinds of uh, local civil society organisations that we're talking about is that it's expensive, you know, to, to become involved in this kind of international, transnational rights promotion activity costs money and you could argue that that money might be better spent in in other ways like health budgets in local civil society organizations or something so there's a perennial kind of tension here and conversation among civil society act activists who never have enough money of course mm -hmm. about how to spend resources but the thing about universal periodic review which i think is really important one thing about it is that it is a way of the international human rights regime backing LGBT populations and communities in the countries in the region and saying, we, you know, we stand with you and we're going to try and hold your political elites to account, you know, by virtue of being part of the UN and now in ASEAN by virtue of having their own human rights declaration and their own human rights regime political leaders are making statements about the importance of treating all human beings with respect, treating them equally and respecting their rights. So when that doesn't happen, political leaders should be held to account. Now, one of the things that is really useful about these processes is that it's a way of publicly documenting the fact that there are queer communities in these countries you know, one of the things that we have seen repeatedly is political leaders saying, oh, you know, there's, there's no queers in my country. <laughs> um, 
if you have a process like this where it's put on the public record, you know, that there are these communities, that they do exist, they're normal people like anyone else trying to improve their society, then that potentially can change the conversation. It's also a way of documenting what has changed or what has not changed over time. And one of the things that is really good about this particular process, doesn't happen in all such processes, but with this particular process, it does allow civil society organisations access to be able to talk in their own voice at every level of the, the stage, you know, from data collection in the home country all the way through to speaking behind a microphone in, in Geneva although you might only get one minute <laughs> to be able to give your report. But if you talk really fast and you're really succinct, you can put there on the public record in these important political, international political fora the fact that we're here, we're queer, get used to it, you know, uh, and start respecting our rights. And sometimes the power of that one minute is actually how it is taken on video and shared on social media and all that that sort of thing as well. Um, let's that's, talk that's, about a few right. of the a few of the countries uh, in the ASEAN region. Uh, so Thailand, probably the most exciting one at the moment, seemingly close to marriage equality, and they've also got some new discrimination protections. Assuming that goes through, do you think that will influence any other countries in the region? Um, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, this is this is one of the points where not all the countries in the region are pulling in the same direction. You know, uh, Thailand is colloquially known as some kind of queer haven and has been that for many people. You know, so what happens in Thailand is not going to change what is happening in places like uh, Malaysia or Indonesia, for example, ov overnight, where the direction of travel has been very much in the opposite direction, so you're not going. You're not going to get a sort of a, a series of big changes like that across the region. Not in Southeast Asia. There might be one or two other places in Asia more generally that are closer to taking cues from what's happening in Thailand. But I think again, part of what it does do though is it uh, it gives people hope and it changes the discourse at a different kind of level. It may help some people to see that the sky doesn't fall in when gays get married, you know, <laughs> on, on the assumption that it goes through. But the other thing that is important is I think in some ways the importance will need to be tracked in the first instance in what happens in Thailand because even though Thailand has this reputation and has, as you mentioned, also been at the forefront of changing discrimination, anti-discrimination law and so on, even within its own population, there is still an enormous amount of social conservatism and, and a lot of social change that needs to happen within Thailand itself. And so I think in the same way that in Australia, I think perhaps we've seen people realise that the sky doesn't fall in when queers get married. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a great fan of marriage as a social institution anyway. I think it's quite conservative. But anyway, baby steps. <laughs> um, you know, so societal change in, in Thailand is also something that is very important. And that is happening and is happening slowly. But, you know, surveys have suggested that the people in generally, the population in Thailand is perhaps more open to queer people than in some other people. But then there's a significant drop off when you start asking them about well, it, what if it was someone in your own family? You know, so there, so people are 
happy to see entertainment or you know clubbing or even working with someone but if it's your your brother or your daughter or something like that there's a kind of a oh you know i'm not so sure about that if, yeah. if thailand's a part of the haves then there's plenty of have-nots as well um uh, brunei myanmar um indonesia as you mentioned probably perhaps even malaysia in certain parts anyway can anything well, in, be yep. Uh, I was going to just uh, about Malaysia. I mean, Ma- Malaysia, the 2018 election and so on, there, there was, which was which uh, was a significant political upset. There was a new government on an anti-corruption platform. And in that process, there was significant hope that there would be, along with the perception that there would be a more generalised embrace of human rights, there was significant hope that that might apply to LGBTIQ populations, but in fact, what happened was very much the reverse. And then, uh, if for people who are aware of the, the broader political situation that's been happening in Malaysia, it's gone back to the status quo ante, and the, you know, the the political elite that had been in power is now back in power. And you know, there's kind of a conserv- a very strong conservative backlash that is happening there. But at the same time, I mean, Malaysia is one of those places where. The queer community is very active. The trans community, for example, has this incredibly thick network of organisations and communication across the country, you know, which gives the lie to the fact that queers don't exist in whether it's Malaysia or any other particular country that you might want to talk about. Probably the country that always does my head in is Singapore, which is this, uh, you know, advanced (laughs) Western-style country, and they still criminalise homosexuality. Um, we're seeing some buds of uh, interest from a parliamentary level now. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Yes. So the recent the recent uh, Pink Dot celebration, which is you know sort of the local equivalent of Pride, as it's called in in many other places, um, there was a, a government member in attendance this time and an opposition member. There have been some. Words spoken by, uh, in, in fact, possibly, uh, I'm not sure, I can't quite remember now whether it was in, actually in Parliament or in a press conference, which might be described as more friendly overtures towards reform. But I have to say, political elites, some political leaders in Singapore have been saying this kind of thing for a very long time. You know, maybe it's happening with more frequency and, and, and so on now, but there is this broader kind of ideology of social control, you might call it, among the political elites in in Singapore, which is very paternalistic to the population in general and very socially conservative. I don't really see a lot of evidence that that is changing it at an increasing speed at all. What is changing, I think, is you know certainly amongst the queer populations themselves who have been taking every opportunity to make their presence felt and to increase levels of representation and all these other dimensions that I've been talking about, human rights networks, social media, and so on and so forth. You know, so I think the the community itself, fantastic community, and it's in a very strong position and is making its voice heard. But that can be said about a number of communities across the region. And the difficulty is that step of translating it into political change and legal change and that remains very difficult i think in almost all places across the region even those where there is some friendliness and often that friendliness it has to be said you know there's this kind of that friendliness is often quite self-interested and that's certainly the case with singapore singapore has a particular you know sort of uh, industry 
be policy, a particular uh, understanding of the national interest that requires it to be on the cutting edge of things like fintech and the creative arts and digital transformation and so on. And it recognises that in those industries, there's a lot of queer people and it, it wants that talent to take up residence in Singapore. So, you know, if you, if you have one of those desired attributes, shall we say, uh, and you're prepared to work in Singapore, you'll probably be welcomed with open arms. But it may well be a very, very different experience if you're one of the undocumented migrant workers who are building the buildings, you know, or working on the docks or, you know, working in domestic care for uh, wealthy middle-class families. These people, who are every bit as important as any one of the rest of us, are much less likely to benefit from this kind of political stance that is quite often taken by political leaders who recognise that they need to play both sides of the fence. Anthony Langwa, Associate Professor in International Relations at Flinders University, thanks so much for joining us on Worldwide Wave. A great pleasure. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Worldwide Wave, the show that takes you around the globe one country at a time. Worldwide Wave is the international news and current affairs show on Australia's LGBT radio station Joy 94.9. You can listen live every Tuesday night on 94.9 FM in Melbourne and online at joy.org.au. You'll find all our podcasts at joy.org.au slash Worldwide Wave or follow us on Facebook for the latest international LGBT news Search W3Joy on Facebook now. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.